The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's been called the greatest play ever written in English, and even that might not be giving it enough credit. Many would rank it among the greatest achievements in the history of humankind. The play is Hamlet by William Shakespeare, and its primary character and his famous soliloquy are known in every corner of the world. Sein oder nicht sein, das ist hier die Frage. Essere o non essere, questo è il dilemma. Bute ce ne bute, ois pytania. Does Hamlet deserve all of the praise it's received? Is it even a good play? And what is it about this 400-year-old work that makes it worthy of our attention today? We're looking at Hamlet today on the History of Literature. To be or not to be, that is the question. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Now, for those of you who are new to the podcast, we are taking a journey. We started with the earliest forms of literature and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now and then we depart from the chronology to look at some contemporary subjects. I've had several guests on the show to talk about their favorite books, and I've also explored some topics with the inestimable president of the Literature Supporters Club. This one is a little different. This episode is an accommodation to Shakespeare's genius. On our chronology, we're up to the poems of the Tang Dynasty. We are not actually at Shakespeare, in other words. We still have a ways to go, several hundred years, but we're getting closer. And one of the things I realized is that I couldn't really do justice to Shakespeare in an hour. We will need longer than that. So rather than do multiple episodes back to back to back to back to back to back, I thought I would sprinkle them in in advance. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We start today with Hamlet. Hamlet was written sometime around 1600. 1599 to 1602 is the dates usually given the best estimates of scholars. The play is set in the kingdom of Denmark and dramatizes the revenge that Prince Hamlet is compelled to inflict upon the current king, his uncle Claudius, whom Hamlet suspects of having murdered his father to seize his father's throne, and who also then married Hamlet's mother. 
Hamlet is Shakespeare's longest play, and perhaps his most popular, from Shakespeare's own day until our own. It's been ranked as the most performed play ever, and it's been called the world's most filmed story, after Cinderella. Shakespeare based the story of the play on the legend of Amleth, a medieval legend that some believe originated in Iceland. Amleth has some key similarities to Hamlet, a man who murders his brother to steal the throne and marries his brother's wife, and a nephew who feigns madness to escape detection. Other elements are similar. The nephew slays an eavesdropper hiding behind a curtain, a direct forerunner of the famous ending of Polonius. But there are other differences, too. After killing his uncle, Amleth ends up with two wives and being killed in battle after many victories, a quite different ending than the one we see for Hamlet. The most important difference is bigger than just plot twists, though. Amleth is a broad, fairy tale like story, a legend like King Arthur or Paul Bunyan. Our Hamlet, the Hamlet of Shakespeare, is very different. Our Hamlet is what happens when you look at a character like Amleth from the inside out rather than the outside in. The psychology of Hamlet and of those around him are where Shakespeare takes a folk story and turns it into a work of artistic genius. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about the people who have disliked Hamlet the play. Tolstoy didn't like Hamlet. He didn't like Shakespeare at all, really. He acknowledged that he was an outlier, and he said he read Shakespeare for fifty years trying to find out what others made what sorry, what made others like Shakespeare so much. Tolstoy read Shakespeare in English and Russian and German in translations recommended to him, but the result was the same. He found it to be hopeless. Shakespeare was not a great genius, in Tolstoy's view, or even an average author. At age 75, Tolstoy reread all of the plays of Shakespeare and then decided that not just that the praise given to Shakespeare was bewildering, but that it was, quote, a great evil, as is every untruth. It staggers the imagination. Tolstoy, the great champion of literature and life, the one who understood personalities and could infuse them with psychological realism, how could he possibly object to his great forerunner, Shakespeare? Have there ever been two artists better equipped at rendering human life into artistic form and inventing and imagining realistic characters and telling us all what it means to be human? Shakespeare and Tolstoy, they are in the pantheon of artists who have given us real life, rich real rich, teeming life, whole worlds created by their vision and their pen. But Tolstoy thought Shakespeare was not plausible. He objected to characters speaking words that they would not in actuality say. He thought Shakespeare didn't earn the tragic endings, and when bodies started being carted across the stage, Tolstoy said he was tempted to laugh rather than be moved. I disagree. Tolstoy gives examples. I disagree with those as well. One of the examples he gives is Lear putting grass on his head, quote, for some reason, end quote. I find the reason clear enough and one of the most powerful moments I've ever seen on stage. It's the picture of a great man fallen, a shadow of his former self, descending into madness as his family has turned from him. And yet, now he's in nature and he's happy in a sense with the one daughter who still cares for him, and there's something going on in his mind. Look, have you ever known anyone with Alzheimer's? 
It's incredible. It's heartbreaking. It's tragic. But the way the mind works at that moment, the way the half memories of childhood and youth that come bubbling up, transformed, is simply astonishing. My great aunt used to laugh and talk about how years ago in Austria, they had many different words for the exact same thing and should repeat all the different words, smiling and laughing to herself at the absurdity of having more than one word for the same thing. And then, five minutes later, she'd tell the exact same story and repeat the words again and delight all over again. It was very sweet and very powerful and very moving to see a woman, a grown woman, slipping back into childhood, maybe slipping back into gentle madness. That's what I see when Lear puts grass on his head. It's not grass, by the way. It's a crown of wildflowers. Grass on his head. Tolstoy. Come on. Tolstoy's playing a little fast with this one. I wonder if what Tolstoy really wanted was for Shakespeare to have been a novelist rather than a playwright. To have these things spelled out, locked down, unmysterious. To have a single prose style like Tolstoy's, which was magnificent and which was omniscient. Tolstoy didn't have this problem. Shakespeare didn't have a narrator who could roam over everything, dip in and out of his characters. He had to do it with the tools he had on the stage, which meant verses spoken by his characters and symbols and gestures like a ring of flowers around his, king, his king's head. Puts grass on his head for some reason. That's Tolstoy. How did he miss the reason? The reason was to send shivers down the spine of the audience as they saw, saw with their eyes, the tragedy of a descent into madness happening right before them on the stage. It works for me 400 years later. T.S. Eliot went further than Tolstoy. He admired Shakespeare, but he thought Hamlet was a bad play. He wrote an essay called Hamlet and His Problems. It's, quote, this is, this is the quote about the play Hamlet. Quote, most certainly an artistic failure. Eliot compared Hamlet to some predecessor plays and says that he thinks Shakespeare copied things over and made changes that weren't fully integrated into the final version. Among other conclusions, Eliot, for Eliot, Hamlet's madness is the result of things Hamlet feels and that Shakespeare could not convey. Let's hold that thought for now. I'll be returning to it later. Against Tolstoy and Eliot, we have millions of performances around the world. A performance is not something you do out of duty, or simply out of duty. You have to go through a lot of effort to put on a play, and people go through a lot of effort to go and see it. Why would we do that if people didn't get something from it? What are these millions of audience members seeing that Tolstoy and Eliot aren't? It cannot just be that we're on autopilot, attending the play because we've been told that it's great, and that we should all better ourselves by going. We must want to. But why? Let's take a look. There is, of course, that famous soliloquy, to be or not to be. To be or not to be, said Clive James. I wish I'd said that. And of course, every writer wishes he or she had. It's so simple, and yet so lasting and powerful. It might be the most famous six words ever written in English. Can you think of any that top it? I have a dream. Any others? And the whole soliloquy is astonishingly good, so good and so famous, it's hard to hear it fresh. And yet we do, 
every time it's performed by a great actor, whether it's Kenneth Branagh or Ray Fiennes or Laurence Olivier or Richard Burton or anyone else. It's a peak of the play, a peak of literature, in fact, and it's the breathtaking part of any performance. But it's not all there is to Hamlet. It might not even be the most important part of the play. So let's not start there. Let's earn our way to it, just as the play does. Because the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy is not just a poem for an anthology, although I've seen it anthologized, and it works just fine, even stripped out of context. It can stand on it. it can, the verses can stand on their own. But it's only in the context of this fascinating play that we see the soliloquy in its full glory. To be or not to be, should we live or should we die? That is the question, except that's actually not the question, or it's not the only question. Here's a question. Why do we care about Hamlet? other than our natural sympathy for a human being wondering if he should kill himself. We all go through ups and downs. People wrestle with dark thoughts all the time. I would guess there have been times where you've heard someone talking about how rough things are for them, and you've thought to yourself, yeah, 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 life's no picnic, buddy. To be or not to be, join the club. Here's what I think is different about Shakespeare's play. We're not listening to a mopey teenager complaining about the cruel world. And we're also not watching a plot from on high with zero empathy from a position of superiority. Shakespeare took this incredible plot and turned it inside out. He makes us inhabit it along with the character. Think about the situation. A prince thinks his father, the king, has been killed by his own brother. And now the prince's mother has married the king. The two are living as man and wife, king and queen, and the king's hands are bloody with the crime. The whole throne is set on a bloody, murderous foundation. There are deep elemental forces at work here. Fury for what's happened to your father, murderous, vengeful feelings toward your uncle, shock and anger at your mother, who shares a bed with the murderer. All of this is built in. If this were an epic hero, anyone we've seen thus far in our journey we'd know what animates him. Anger, bitterness, revenge. But here's another element Shakespeare adds. Uncertainty. That transforms everything. What if this happened to you, and you are a prince, so you have a public role to play? You must take a position. Will you appear in public with these two, sanctioning their wedding? Will you treat the uncle as your king? As your father? If you were certain... The choice would be simple. No, because you're a hero, and heroes don't allow kings to be murdered unjustly. Your quest, your goal is simple. Seek revenge. But what if you're not sure? What happens if you only think it might be the case? Do you go along with it? What if your revenge is misplaced? Do you try to get past it? So that's the first thing we identify with. What would we do if we were Hamlet? What if we just suspected that something was wrong? Now the elemental issues take on a new resonance as fodder for Hamlet's dilemma. Hate your mother. That's a big deal. That's a big thing to take that on. That means you're a different person. Does she deserve it? Does she really deserve it? You don't know. Is vengeance appropriate? It will turn you into a murderer 
It might lead to your death. But on the other hand, what does complacence mean? What does it mean to be complicit in this, to stand by and watch it happen? Your sense of who you are, your purpose, your role, all of this is undermined by this uncertainty. You were supposed to be a prince, and we know how good princes behave. But what are they supposed to do in situations like this one? What if this all happened to us? We would behave erratically, right? The first That'd be the first thing to happen. We'd probably be swinging around, back and forth, unsure of what exactly we were supposed to do. Mel Gibson, who played Hamlet in the film, and who knows a little something about being erratic, nailed this aspect as he tried to inhabit Hamlet's character on screen. This was his quote, I know the lines, Gibson said. I've read them so many times, I go to sleep thinking about them. But the character is so confusing. It doesn't matter how many times you nail him or think you've nailed him, it's the most expletive, elusive thing. Every time you go back to the text, there's something else there which completely negates what you were thinking about before. Complexity, ambiguity, Tolstoy and Eliot disapprove. Keats didn't, of course. John Keats found this the genius of Shakespeare. Quote, At once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, in which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean, negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. End quote. Hamlet is not just the prince of Denmark. He's the prince of negative capability. And his creator, Shakespeare, is the king. So that's our first question. What would we do if we were Hamlet in this position? Given all this uncertainty about such elemental questions with so much at stake, what would we do? What actions would we take? How would we behave? How would we be? But here's the second question. What if you saw someone else acting like this? What would you do? Put yourself in the minds of those around Hamlet. We in the audience are in this position, but not quite. We know things the characters don't. We've seen a fuller narrative. The characters on stage might only see part of it. And now they have to deal with Hamlet, who's acting the way he is. What does one do in such a situation? How do you act around them? What do you do then? Those are the questions, and they have deep philosophical roots. What is the self? Who am I? And how can we ever really know anyone? Shakespeare's genius is that he isn't didactic. He's not writing essays about these topics. He's reading them, though, especially the essays of Montaigne. Here's Stephen Greenblatt describing Montaigne's project and how it influenced Shakespeare. Montaigne would not present himself as the fixed embodiment of this or that quality, for he experienced existence as a succession of inconsistent and disjointed thoughts and impulses. He could not narrate his life as a story of heroic virtue, or indeed as a story of anything else, for precisely by virtue of being alive, his existence was ongoing, incomplete, unfinished. It is myself I portray, he tells the reader, and therefore he wishes his imperfections and his natural form to be read to the life. 
What this means, as we learn when we encounter Montaigne's writing, is that he is constantly in motion. All the same, Montaigne was, of course, engaged in giving an account of himself. No one has ever done it more magnificently. But his object, as he puts it, would not stay still, and his account was deliberately composed without a shape. If I speak diversely of myself, it is because I look diversely upon myself, shamefaced, bashful, insolent, chaste, luxurious, peevish, prattling, silent, fond, doting, laborious, nice, delicate, ingenious, slow, dull, froward, humorous, debonair, wise, ignorant, false in words, true speaking, both liberal, covetous, and prodigal. All these I perceive in some measure or other to be in mine, according as I stir or turn myself. This sounds at first like a matter of perspective, the angle at which one regards an object, even so intimately familiar an object as oneself, would necessarily change the terms of a depiction. But it is not only a matter of the shifting position of the beholder. Rather, it is the inner life of the self, as well as the position of the viewer, that is constantly in motion. It is important to grasp this constant interplay of different perspectives, in part because it is true to Montaigne's cheerfully professed taste for contradicting himself, and in part because it is an aspect of the text that Shakespeare and his contemporaries would have experienced. We know that Shakespeare repeatedly made forays into the essays to seize upon things he thought he could use. That's a great passage. It describes Shakespeare's mind. He doesn't just think, he feels, he inhabits. There's no other way to get to where he does as quickly as he does. He jumps into the problem, the plot, the legend of Amleth, the basic structure and situation, and Hamlet comes firing out of his imagination. Hamlet, like anyone in that situation, would be torn. He would flail around. He'd be crazy, or maybe he'd be sane. Amleth has the main character feigning madness as if he's a knowing trickster in control of himself. Shakespeare would say, faced with such a situation, maybe the madness would be real, or maybe not. Maybe it's just how we feel when something this incredible puts this much pressure on us. Or maybe it's sane to be this uncertain, but the uncertainty looks like madness to everyone else. Our self is slippery and hard to pin down. We're not flat characters. We're round, or more than round. We're kaleidoscopes in 5D. But also, we never really know anyone. Onlookers can only guess what's happening in someone else's mind. Was Hamlet sane or insane? Orson Welles seized on one line to argue that Hamlet was sane. Here's his quote. I don't think any madman ever said, quote, why, what an ass am I, end quote. I think that's a divinely sane remark. I thought Wells was kidding at first, but now I'm not so sure. It's deeper than I first thought. It has a, f a couple of levels. I'll let you ponder that one on your own, because we need to move on. So there we are. Hamlet is slippery and elusive, and he's hard to understand. What an effect that would have on those around him. A simpler mind than Shakespeare's might have taken the plot, pushed people around, given them their simple motives, and reached a result. Hamlet's feigning madness, because that's the easy way to go. That's simple. That's uncomplicated. 
Hamlet is the hero. He comes up with the clever ruse of feigning madness. Shakespeare goes to the core. Who am I? How can we know other people? Keep those two questions in mind. Who am I? And how can we know other people? They are at the heart of the human condition. We ask this question in a simpler form. How do I know what blue is? How do I know that your experience of blue is like my experience of blue? And that exposes the central truth. We don't know what makes us us, and we don't know if what makes us us is the same as it what makes other people them. Who am I? How can we know other people? The opening scenes of Hamlet have been praised for their efficiency. As a storyteller, I love unpacking things like this. Think about it. What are we trying to get done here? There's a, a court ceremony with all the main characters on display. That's Act 1, Scene 2. Imagine if Hamlet started with the ceremony in Act 1, Scene 1. The king and queen would parade through. Hamlet would be there. We would admire the royalty and all the pomp and circumstance. Then, maybe we hear from the ghost. Maybe we find out that all that pomp and circumstance that we just saw was false. There's an undercurrent there that we didn't know about. Believe me, that's a very tempting way to tell a story. Let me show you the public facade, but guess what? You didn't know the truth about them. But think about what the audience would experience in that scenario. We'd see the ceremony. We would admire the pomp and circumstance. Then we would find out that we were mistaken. So we would maybe have five minutes of admiration for the royals, then a second of realization and then a retroactive application of our surprise to the ceremony. That feeling of surprise and woe, everything is not what we thought. How does Hamlet actually begin? Act 1, Scene 1 has some guards in the dark and the shadows trying to figure out what's happening. It starts with a mystery and confusion the ceremony, when it finally comes, takes on a different air. As we're watching, we know something is rotten in the state of Denmark. We've already seen the ghost. We've heard the tales of the ghost and what it could mean. And we don't watch the ceremony with awe and reverence, but with suspicion, distrust, uncertainty. Where does that put us? This air of suspicion, distrust, uncertainty. We are in the mindset of Hamlet. Listen to the language of the opening scene, the first line of the play. Who's there? Think about that. Remember our key questions. Who am I? And how can we ever really know someone else? Who's there? The second line. Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Two lines. Two guards, practically anonymous characters, speaking in the shadows in a play about a court and a king. And the lines, the first two lines, who's there? Unfold yourself. It's the heart of the play, the core questions. Who are you? Who am I? I don't know you. How do we identify ourselves to one another? Right there in the first two lines. Once Shakespeare finds his themes, he plums them to their depths. 
The themes echo throughout. He does this effortlessly. It's as if he knew no other way to write. It feels both rational and instinctive. Now, we're running out of time for this quick episode, this quick look at Hamlet we wanted to do. We're going to have to leave a lot out. Polonius, Ophelia, the play within a play, where Hamlet finally finds a part that he can play, and all of the many, many resonant lines. Let's conclude with this, which I think gets at the timelessness. That's the real shocker in this. A 400-year-old play that still speaks to us. It's not a religious work, and yet it's right there, still being made into a film every five years or so, still being read and performed all over the world. Why is this play so timeless? Who am I? Who are you? Those are the hardest things about being a human and living in a human world. We live with knowledge and uncertainty, and we're obliged to act, but we never really know how to act. There will always be a point where we don't know, because there will always be a point where we don't know who or what we are, and we don't really know others either. There's an interesting line in the famous soliloquy, Death is, quote, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. That's part of the should I live or should I die dilemma. What if there is no heaven? What if there's nothing? Or what if it's worse? No traveler returns. That's interesting. Hamlet has seen a ghost. The ghost has appeared several times already to Hamlet and to others. That's the whole point of ghosts. They return from death. They come back to earth in some form. But are they really us? Are they the same? Every night we go to bed expecting to be the same person in the morning when we wake up. There's nothing that necessarily assures us that this will happen, and we expect the same to happen to others. We expect them to be the same essential person as they were the last time we saw them. There's something comforting about that, something reassuring. We depend on this familiarity. We take it for granted. Two things can take it away. One is madness. The other is death. We lose the certainty of what we thought we knew about the self, whether it's ours or someone else's. But in losing it, we wonder if we ever had any certainty at all. Yes, a ghost might appear. But do we know that the ghost we see is the same soul as we once knew? We can assume it is, or it isn't. But isn't that just the same problem that we always have? What does it feel like to be a ghost? How can we ever hope to know? Not because the ghost won't tell us, but because we can't ever really know such a thing. What kind of blue does a ghost see? How can we know that when we can't even know what blue looks like to our best friend here on earth? I know what you're saying. Jack, Hamlet is about death. It's Yorick and the skull, and to be or not to be, and not knowing what happens if death is sleep, or sleep with a dream, and if so, what dreams those would be. It's about a horrendous situation, an adolescent at the end of his rope, and afraid to do the only thing that makes sense, because he doesn't know what happens when we shuffle off this mortal coil. It's about thought, incapacitating thought, overthinking, as Coleridge argued, overthinking leading to inaction. And I say, yes, that's all there too. Shakespeare does both. 
How do we live with uncertainty? And how do we not live at all? Those are our dilemmas. Life and death and death and life. It's not a wonder that people still go to see Hamlet. It's almost a wonder that we ever go to see anything else. But, of course, we do. I think I got a little carried away there. Man cannot live by Hamlet alone. What should we look at next? Othello? Or my favorite, Macbeth? First, I think we'll take a look at writing programs, their history, and their impact on contemporary literature. And we have our look at Javier Marias coming up, and Alice Monroe. There's so much to cover. Here's my piece of certainty. Thank you for listening to the show. I am certain that I appreciate it. Tis the thing most fair to have you here with me. I hope you enjoyed this little look at an enormous play. And I hope you subscribe to the podcast and come back for more. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening to the History of Literature. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>